They say that happiness is a warm gun, but it's hard to feel anything short of abject devastation and blinding rage each time your phone lets you know that there's been another mass shooting, or a regular shooting, or a police-involved shooting, a domestic violence-related shooting, a self-inflicted shooting, accidental shooting, or that another warm gun shot through the heart of yet another community today, and that just like yesterday, there's nothing you can do to stop it from happening again tomorrow. You've already likely gotten such a notification today, or we'll get one while you're listening to this. I got two while I was writing this episode. And we'll feel something, or worse, nothing, and go about the rest of your day as we've been conditioned to, as though there's nothing particularly remarkable about how often someone's shot to death in this country. And as the Supreme Court struggles to untangle New York's gun laws, we're struggling to find solutions to this new normal that amount to more than a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. And so we did what we always do, threw up our hands in utter frustration and turned on the TV to drown out the horrors of everyday life. the sound barrier. It's the Mattel Thunderburp with the real vibrasonic sound chamber that's loaded forever and ever. No batteries, no caps. That Thunderburp looks like real, sounds like real. It even vibrates like real. It's safe to play with. Just flip up the sight, pull back the bolt, and fire. But that didn't work, and it kind of made us feel worse about the world than we did when we started. Easy to load and easy to fire. And so we did what we love to do grabbed an assortment of mobile recording equipment, hit the streets, and asked Brooklyn what it was doing about all these goddamn guns. This month, we're staring down the barrel and looking for answers. First, we look for clues online. Then, we go to tape and hear the action on the sidewalk. Next, we ask God and his disciples to show us a better way. Then, we ask the youth to save us from ourselves. And finally, we turn to art to help us make sense of all this senselessness. This country's gun problem is massive and manifold, but we need a fix because we're going down in Brooklyn, USA. Should a person's Facebook posts, Instagram stories, Twitter threads, and dankest memes impact their ability to purchase a firearm? Two local politicians are convinced that they should, despite the concerns that it raises around privacy and free speech. Producer Maria Luisa Tucker asked them and the internet how much you can really tell about a person from their online persona. Here's Maria Luisa. In August, a young man posted a racist manifesto on an online message board. And then he walked into a Walmart in El Paso and opened fire. Hey, somebody's got shot. At least 20 dead, more than two dozen injured. He allegedly showed up at the Walmart armed and with a grudge detailed in a manifesto he reportedly wrote and posted on an extremist website. The suspect allegedly told investigators he wanted to shoot as many Mexicans as possible. It certainly wasn't the first time we'd seen a gunman announce his plan online. In fact, the Texas shooter was inspired by the man who targeted Muslims in two New Zealand mosques earlier in the year. In that case, the attacker not only announced what he was going to do online, but also live-streamed the shooting on Facebook. He killed 49 people and injured 48 more. What if we could disarm men like that before their online threats morphed into real-life violence? What if the government could monitor every gun owner's social media and take their guns away if they started spewing hateful things on the internet? Could it prevent the next mass shooting? In Brooklyn, there are two politicians who think it could. You 
If you want to carry a firearm, you can't have on your social media profile uh, hate rhetoric. That's Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. He isn't a typical anti-gun activist or really a typical anything. He's a former police captain who was a vocal critic of the NYPD's stop-and-frisk practice. Adams is a vegan who brings his gun to church, just in case. I own three firearms, and so although I'm a believer in the Second Amendment, I have a belief within asterisks that there should become some form of restrictions. People should have the right to say what they want, but with that right comes certain responsibilities if you want to do certain things. After the shooting at the Pittsburgh synagogue last year, Adams came up with the idea of social media checks on gun owners and shared that idea with another Brooklyn politician, State Senator Kevin Parker. That conversation resulted in Senate Bill 1413. It would require law enforcement to review the social media accounts of any New Yorker who applies for or renews a handgun license or who wants a permit to buy a rifle or a shotgun. Those applicants would have three years of their Facebook, YouTube, Gab, Twitter, and Instagram history scrutinized. Content likely to incite or produce a violent action or excessive discriminatory content could mean a gun license denied or revoked. It's unclear right now how those decisions would be made. In New York City, you have to renew your handgun license every three years anyway, so in effect, the NYPD would be tasked with reviewing every single social media post of every single gun owner in the city. And by the way, there are more than 16,000 licensed gun owners here. I spoke with a lawyer who has researched how law enforcement agencies use and monitor social media to see what she thought of this proposal. My name is Rachel Levinson-Waldman, and I'm senior counsel to the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Look, I am sympathetic to the aim behind this, right? I mean, there have been instances of really horrific acts of violence where it has turned out after the fact that it seems like somebody did signal not only their views, but potentially an intention to commit violence on a social media platform. So I certainly get where this is coming from. But I think this kind of approach, and honestly, especially this particular approach, unfortunately, just isn't calculated to actually address that problem. Like any good lawyer, she saw exactly how this proposal could be challenged in court. So I think it's very hard to know what discriminatory content would mean here. Certainly content that could produce a violent action in someone else. Someone else could get angry about just about anything I post. So the idea that I would need to be cognizant over multiple years of whether I'm saying something to anger somebody else, to some extent, that's kind of what social media is out there for, right? People use social media for a huge range of purposes. But certainly one of those is to engage in discussions, debate, talk about views that are controversial or unpopular. And people could get angry about even, you know, things that that seem to be totally sort of innocuous to other people. Levinson Waldman also raised the issue of how much social media surveillance is already happening, often without us even knowing about it. She told me stories about protesters being spied on. The Memphis Police Department was surveilling uh, activists online, so activists with Black Lives Matter, Palestinian rights activists. 
in fact, one of the officers created an undercover account to connect with people online to find out more information. This was largely about um, lawful protests. She told me about police departments contracting with tech companies to do large-scale monitoring of social media. The Jacksonville, Florida Police Department had set up a social media monitoring program that was sort of flagging keywords. So one of the keywords that they wanted to flag was bomb, right? They want to know is somebody saying they're going to bring a bomb to a big public event. In fact, most of what they got was people posting saying things like, that pizza was the bomb. Already, the federal government collects social media information from both immigrants applying for visas and naturalized citizens. Also, the NYPD has been lurking around social media of young people living in public housing, looking for posts that could be interpreted as gang activity. When something is up for interpretation, we know who tends to kind of bear the brunt of that interpretation, and it tends to be communities of color in terms of who's penalized for organizing for certain kinds of content that are put up. So unfortunately, I think you can see huge numbers of ways that this isn't going to fit what people are hoping to because it's going to be both under-inclusive and so over-inclusive. Hi, Declan, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. After trekking to two different shooting ranges in Brooklyn where several gun owners refused to talk to me on the record, I turned to Facebook and started messaging anyone who'd recently reviewed any of New York City's seven gun ranges. And that is where I found Declan Bryan, a Manhattanite whose profile picture is just the phrase, I am pro-gun, in big white letters, against an image of a man holding a rifle. Ryan owns four handguns. One of the few videos posted on his timeline shows him at a Pennsylvania gun range. I've always been into shooting and guns from an early age. It started out back when I was about maybe 10 or 11 when I'd get the toy police sets for my birthday or the Nerf guns and they came with little targets. And when I turned 21, which here in New York is the required age before you can legally apply for your permit, I started getting into it. I got the permit at 21. I'm now 29. If you scroll through Ryan's Facebook timeline, you would learn that he's a runner and that his mom likes to post sweet messages and also that he's blind he says he can operate a gun as well as a sighted person as long as he has help. So one of the ways I go to the range and shoot is someone will be behind me and they'll call out high left, high right, low left, low right. And based on those directions, I know that's where I need to aim the gun to either get on paper or get closer to the bullseye. He has a premise gun license, a type of license that allows you to keep a gun at home or at your business but you can't take it anywhere else except to a shooting range, unloaded and locked up. To get that license, he went through New York City's lengthy and expensive application process. It involves fingerprinting, a criminal background check, and a check of any mental health records, alongside fees that total $428. On the application, they ask, do you have any medical condition that would hinder you from safely owning a firearm? 
So who's to say that their opinions on what I can do is right as opposed to my opinion? I know my body. I know what I can and can't do. So who are they to tell me that I'm wrong and they're right? When Ryan went in for the mandatory in-person interview with the NYPD, which is a standard part of the process here, the officer interviewing him agreed that he would be a responsible gun owner. He was granted a gun license. As you might expect, he does not want the NYPD examining his Facebook page to decide if that license should be renewed. There's no clear-cut description of what they're looking for exactly. So when they go to research what people have posted, who's to say that they're not going to deny someone because they've spoken out against the current administration? I'm very outspoken against the governor and Mayor de Blasio. I've never personally threatened them. But if they were to look at social media accounts and go to my Facebook, they would see that I think the current administration shouldn't be in place and they could potentially use that against me when I go to renew my permits and say that there's a risk that he could do something violent because he doesn't agree with the way we're running things. The social media review bill is stuck in committee and may never become law. Meanwhile, mass shootings continue to happen with frightening regularity, and there's no reason to think they'll stop. Since the social media review bill was introduced last November, mass shootings have killed almost 500 people in this country, and another 1,500 have been injured. The month of August ended as it began, with a shooting rampage and significant death toll. We heard like shots, like three shots, boom, boom, Thousands boom. of city employees gathered today to mourn friends and colleagues killed in Friday's shooting at a government building. Among the injured is a 17-month-old baby girl. Although social media reviews haven't gained much traction on either a state or a federal level, there is one new wave of state legislation that can actually remove guns from people who pose threats, the red flag laws. These laws are also called extreme risk protection orders. 17 states and Washington, D.C. have passed these red flag laws. They're a little different in every state, but essentially they allow law enforcement, family members, household members, and sometimes even school officials to ask a judge to confiscate someone's guns. And in some states, red flag laws can even prevent a person from being allowed to buy a gun in the first place. New York's red flag law took effect August 24th. So if you have a brother or a classmate telling you they want to shoot up the school or church or that they want to hurt themselves, you can do something about it. You can ask a judge to take away their firearms for up to a year or to prevent them from buying a firearm. Of course, the judge needs evidence that there's a good reason to take away a person's guns and part of that might be their social media posts. Citizens have very little say in how they're policed. New Yorkers in particular are watched, listened to, mapped, facially and otherwise, and generally sucked dry for their data. And while NYPD oversight measures made it onto the back of this November's ballot, an appointed civilian complaint review board isn't nearly enough. So is a new surveillance technology a responsible answer to gun violence? Here's Emily. 
It's possible you've never heard of it, but ShotSpotter is the world's largest gunshot detection system. New anti-crime technology is in operation in Baltimore. Denver police are testing out their shot spotter technology. On Chicago's south side in the neighborhood of Englewood, police report a stunning 43% drop in shootings last year, largely because of these shot spotters. This call is being recorded. My name is Ralph Clark and I'm the president and CEO of ShotSpotter. ShotSpotter is a for-profit company with an audio surveillance technology that detects, locates, and alerts police to outdoor gunfire. We're deployed in over 100 cities. We have two international deployments, one in Nassau, Bahamas, and then the other one in Cape Town, South Africa. The company went public in 2017. Today, they charge cities somewhere between $65,000 and $90,000 per square mile per year. The NYPD is expanding its electronic senses from eyes to ears. In March of 2015, the NYPD installed 300 audio sensors in precincts in Brooklyn and the Bronx as part of a pilot program. They were saying, hey, there's no way they can be successful here in New York because our environment is so unique, it's so different, it's so challenging. About a year later, Mayor Bill de Blasio and Police Commissioner Bill Bratton who sat on the board of ShotSpotter before he was reappointed to the Office of Police Commissioner in 2013, announced the official rollout of ShotSpotter in all five boroughs. This new gunshot detection system is going to do a world of good in terms of going after the bad guys in this town, and it's going to allow us to deeply enhance the safety of our communities and the communication between police and community, because when something happens, we're going to know about it instantly. Uh, NYPD in New York City is our second largest customer, around 70 square miles deployed, with our largest customer being New York City that has over 115 square miles deployed. The progress that's made by this department is because of a, an ethic, uh, an ethic that is focused on innovation, on constantly improving the work. ShotSpotter is the latest in a string of police technology embraced by the NYPD. Uh, Commissioner Bratton epitomizes this and what he did by developing the ComStat system is, I think, the epitome of this notion in the history of our city and the history of policing in our city. In the mid-90s, Bill Bratton and Rudy Giuliani introduced ComStat, a data-driven model of policing that's criticized for the role it's played in broken windows policing and the stop, question, and frisk harassment of hundreds of thousands of black and brown New Yorkers. But that idea of constantly innovating, constantly trying to take uh, advantage of the newest technology, looking at ways to do things better and differently than before, that pervades this agency, and it's part of why it is the finest police force in this country. While ShotSpotter had buy-in from the city, New Yorkers were skeptical of the new surveillance technology projected to cost $3 million in its first year. A gun is fired somewhere in your city. So what happens now? In the past, there was a slim chance the shooting would be reported to police at all. At least, that's how things were. ShotSpotter has changed all that. So how does it work? The company was founded 20 years ago by a Dr. Bob Schoen who had been using math to triangulate or pinpoint the lo locations or epicenters of earthquakes and things like that. And he had the notion that he could apply those same principles acoustically and be able to perhaps identify and triangulate or pinpoint uh, gunfire. 
ShotSpotter installs a network of outdoor microphones, or, in their words, acoustic acoustic sensors, sensors. on lampposts, rooftops, or anywhere high up. The sensors are designed to suppress ambient noise and pick up on the impulsive pops and booms of gunfire. Once gunfire is detected, the sensors triangulate and timestamp the noise. The exact location of the detected gunshot is indicated by a dot on a map. The sound is then sent to ShotSpotter headquarters in Newark, California. Uh, Just on the other side of the bridge from Facebook. For human review. 24-7-365. These folks on a real-time basis will be listening to and looking at these pops, booms, and bangs, and they'll make the final determination whether to publish that incident or not. ShotSpotter acoustic analysts receive extensive training on reviewing and classifying gunfire by distinguishing gunshots from other impulsive sounds that are not gunshots. And so they'll knock down further uh, any potential false positives, things like, you know, jackhammers or fireworks. According to a field test done by the National Institute of Justice, ShotSpotter's detection is 80% accurate. You know, we should have no more than 10% uh, false negatives, i.e. missing gunshots. We'll tend to err on the side of send the alert out as opposed to not sending it. Um, False positives suck, but false negatives suck more than false positives. That whole process takes uh, between 30 and 45 seconds from the trigger being pulled to the alert showing up in a police department's 911 dispatch center. ShotSpotter has critics. Concerns range from officers who claim the tech is inaccurate and would rather see more cops hired, to citizens worried about cost, over-policing, and privacy violations. In 2012, a ShotSpotter mic in Massachusetts recorded part of a conversation following a shooting, sparking a debate over whether ShotSpotter audio would be admissible in court Someone happened to be standing underneath a sensor. Someone shot them, and they responded, like, literally after they shot him, like, why you do me like that, Jay, or something like that. They said, why you do me like that XYZ person? That got a lot of notoriety because that helped finger the person. The, the privacy surveillance discussions is coming up more frequently, and we've actually engaged an uh, independent body to come in and do an audit of our company from a privacy point of view. My name's Farhang Haideri. I'm the executive director of the Policing Project at NYU Law School. Last year, Ralph Clark reached out to the Policing Project to request a company-wide audit. Our mission is to work with communities and police to achieve more just and more effective policing. It should be noted that Ralph Clark sits on the board of the Policing Project. When we think about policing, our goal is public safety. That means more than just neighborhoods that don't have crime. It means improved relationships with police departments. It means communities having a voice in how they're policed. You know, we thought if we could help a dozen tech companies improve their practices, that we'd actually have a huge impact on the field as opposed to a dozen police departments. So far, the policing project has only worked with a few tech companies. Axon, the largest maker of body cameras in the United States, and ShotSpotter. With ShotSpotter specifically, we worked on a privacy audit. So tackling the question of what's the risk to individual personal privacy posed by ShotSpotter. This is a problem with every policing technology. Companies, police departments, they're not particularly transparent about how the tech works, what their policies are on collecting data, on storing data, on using data. You know, the Fourth Amendment doesn't 
give you a lot of protection when you're out in public. So if private companies want to put up cameras or license plate readers to watch you in public, there's not much constitutional law around that. In July of 2019, the Policing Project released their report on ShotSpotter. The first recommendation we made was to reduce the length of time that audio is stored. They stored audio for about three days on any particular sensor. So now it's closer to about one day. We also got them to really change their internal practices with who has access to audio and what sort of audit trails are generated every time someone listens in. And the last change was to put really strong language in their policies and in their public statements that they would not allow police or DAs or anyone else to use ShotSpotter as an audio surveillance device. Another recommendation was for ShotSpotter to draft a clear outward-facing privacy policy. I think every policing uh, tech company should have totally clear policies that are written for regular folks, not written by lawyers. And then frankly, every police department should do the same thing. They should make their use policies clear, put it up for the public. You know, I'm wary about any new technology, especially when you're using technology on neighborhoods that already have borne the brunt of violence and over-policing and, you know, decades of biased police practices. I don't see ShotSpotter as, um, being too concerning on that front because these are gunshots and in New York City there's not a lot of good reasons for there to be gunshots you know it's a degree of objective evidence and I actually think that it's really damaging to police community relations when police don't respond to gunfire. Both Ralph Clark and Farhang Haideri agree that police technology is not an answer to gun violence. It's just not about shot spotter. It's about response protocol. It's about the strategy that the police department has to better serve at-risk underserved communities and integrate our technology with other technologies and also uh, integrate it with other processes and other programs. There's decades of research out there on gun violence prevention, and the one thing that everyone agrees on is there's no one solution. Um, it really needs to be a comprehensive strategy of regulating how people get weapons, background checks. You know, I think addressing root causes of gun violence is incredibly important, and I think one of those root causes is the relationships between police and their communities. If communities feel over-policed, policed in ways that aren't productive, then people don't like to report crimes, they don't like to serve as witnesses. And so I think no matter what the tech is or no matter what the research says, it all has to be within the context of police listening to their communities, working with their communities. For the last decade, a team of Baptist and Episcopalian ministers, Seventh-day Adventists, and at least one rabbi have been bridging the gap between the cops and the community in the 67th Precinct. This clergy crisis response team is known locally as the God Squad, and producer Sriyanka Ray spent an afternoon walking their beat as they spread healing to combat gun violence in central Brooklyn. Here's Sriyanka. The 67th Precinct Clergy Council, aka the God Squad, was formed in 2010. Together, the members of the God Squad use faith-based programming and street-level interventions to keep their communities safe. 
They also organize shooting responses in the same area where a person has lost their life to gun violence. We went with the God Squad to a shooting response in Flatbush Gardens, where a 21-year-old Clevens Valsin was shot and killed in front of his own building. A lot in East Flatbush section of Brooklyn. In East Flatbush, this quiet street was rocked by gunfire. Fatal gunfire broke out. Gun-toting suspect. Now black, 20 years old. Shot in the torso. Shot in the head and chest. Shot to death in Brooklyn. Well, I'd like you to just say a few words when we get downstairs. You say thank you, you. You just say a few words in the mic. You say thank you, everyone, for coming out. Thank you for your support. We're gonna just gather around. We're gonna gather around. Join around. Um, Dad, come, come. Where is um? All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're gonna begin in a moment. Um, for a community response to this heinous, senseless shooting of a young man who had his whole life ahead of him. My name is Guilford Monroe. I am the president of the God Squad, the 67 Priests and Clergy Council. We are a group of churches and also clergy members who live, work, or have interests within the confines of the 67 Precinct. You don't know which church, but you know, I said if you come, we will tell you. But that's My name is Minister Aaron Williams, and I'm also with the God Squad. My role is a mediator, and I would say also an advocate. But also, I mediate to help confiscate guns off the street. No, it's good, huh? How you doing? Our responsibility that we believe is to make sure that all communities safe. We are here standing as a community because we believe that we don't want any shooting in Brooklyn, especially in East Flatbush, to go unanswered. I want you to take an opportunity to look around me, look behind me. Uh, more than you can see, we support our community and the family have our support. My name is Maxine Lewis. My son, at the age of 16, shot and killed for a gold chain. Seeing a mother who is wrenched in pain and people doesn't understand you think it's just that you shot someone, they die, and that's it. But the mother. Scream back! Okay, okay, okay. You do not get over it. That woman is up there, is in pain. She is going through. And her word is, my baby, my baby, her only child. Bon Dieu, Baba no financiel. If there is someone who is shot and killed in the confines of the 67 precinct, we will provide the funeral services for that family. We will care for that family. We will love that family. And we will try our best to make sure it doesn't happen again. Give me your name, baby. Kenisha. Kenisha? Okay. All right. All right. We, we're here with you, Kenisha. 
We also have high-level conversation with the police department. One of our responsibilities is to be able to say, listen, this kid is actually one of our kids. He's in a program. He's doing good. As opposed to taking them to the system and giving them a record, why don't you release them into our care? So our job is to mitigate and to work and build a bridge between what is happening on the ground and what is happening in the halls of one police plaza. Every time someone is shot in, in New York City, we, we get an update. Every color that you see someone who was shot between January of 2019 and June, I think 2018. For, for us to really also to understand how gangs and crews on the culture work, we have to be able to look at what trends we're seeing. The city gave us, um, came to us and they said, okay, we see what you're doing. The 6-7 precinct was a class A precinct. A young man was just shot two days ago. Let's see, who is this young person? When did he get shot? On the 21st, 9.25 p.m. Not likely, eight, male, black, 24. This is the age that we normally would see people being killed. Yeah, four people was hit. One, one DOA, dead on arrival, one likely, that means that we likely to die, and two not likely to die in the 8-1 prison. Male, black, 20. Male, black, 20. Female, black, 22. Female. Why the violence? Because America is a violent community. We've got a violent society. We have more guns in America than we have people. Then you also have reduced possibilities with young people because of the lack of resources. You divest from our communities. And when you have failing schools, you have prison cells being built on third grade scores. You have all of this compounded in a small, compact area that is overpopulated you are going to get violence. What's up? What's up? What's up, son? Chilling? Cole? I was incarcerated off and on for um, approximately seven years. When I was incarcerated, I came in contact with religion and spiritually it was something to do. You know, guys would say, hey, listen, I'm going to the church. Some will go to the mosque to pray. So I had a choice of which one. I said, well, I'm going to go to church. It was a, a man from Queens. I'll never forget his face, but he would preach about God so hard with so much passion. And he talked about God loving everyone. And I think that was one of the things that at the time kind of moved me. They call Brooklyn a city of churches. I mean, you have a church on every corner or two or three on every block. And I don't know the consciousness of why the community don't know you as a leader. I think that if you have a church in this community or any community, they should know you as a leader or the pastor in that neighborhood. And you should be available. Say hi, hello. We can be prophets of the city. Yes. Hi. Hi, LeBron James. <laughs> About the role of the black church. We really and truly seek to hold families together. Here is the after school programs that we are running. Here are all initiatives that we are doing collectively as a church. 
we look at the numbers of the people that we're serving and we say that if you would remove this from our community, violence will be up. It's very important to hold on to our faith. Why? Because at the end of the day, that's all that you have. And if you lose your faith, then you have nothing. And then we will be in more trouble in our communities. These neighborhoods are sold guns to everybody around here, just about like, I mean, here, um, <laughs> all these blocks, uh, you know, if, I mean, you know, and, and fascinatingly, <laughs> I had so much weapons at the time back in those days that I had so much, I would give stuff away too at that one point. That's why we do what we do, because we believe that every individual can grow, can change, can be redeemed. Now, redemption looks differently for different people. Mm -hmm. I believe in a total idea of redemption. I have a first chance, second chance, third chance. I think I've had 12 chances like the 12 tribes of Israel. I, you know, I do share with people. I have more friends that are, hmm, more friends that are dead than alive from street violence. Sometimes I've asked God, what made me different from them? Nothing. Nothing at all made me different from them. And then I said, God, was it that were they not gonna answer the call if you gave them the opportunity or you knew that I would answer? I mean, but, and I said, God, look, I'm still, you know, I'm still fragile, I'm still broken, I'm still in need of you. So what made me different? God didn't answer. But what I'm doing is not just for me, it's for all of those friends of mine that's not here. Because I know if they was here, they would be doing the same thing. They would do the same thing that I'm doing. Between 2017 and 2018, the homicide rate in the 67th precinct dropped by 65%. The number of shooting victims dropped by 21%. This is in the same year that Brooklyn saw a 6% increase in shooting victims across the borough. We can do this, Brooklyn. Come on. Most gracious Lord and our Heavenly Father. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, we ask that you would move and that you would speak to the hearts of the young men and the young women in this community. Yes, yes. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll help them to understand that their life has meaning, their life has purpose, their life has value. On weekdays after 3 p.m., the headquarters of Neighbors in Action is flooded with teenagers. The community-based anti-gun violence organization has been operating out of a small storefront office in Crown Heights since 1998. In 2011, they launched Yo SOS, an after-school youth program designed to give the next generation of anti-violence gun activists the tools to organize around the issues of violence and trauma. Twice a week after school, they meet up to talk about how gun violence shows up in their lives and what they can do about it. Here's Migos. Me and my friends outside, we talk about it when like things happen. So 
you know, on the news, we hear something or going through Facebook and we see like, yo, this crazy story. And like, we all sent to the chat or we posted on our page on Facebook and like we comment. I feel like when I talk to my friends about it, we talk about like how this world is being like corrupt. Me, to be honest, I thought that I would be the one like, you know, in the middle of all the gun violence. But instead, like right now my path is to try and stop it. My name is Migos. My name is Javon Medford and I'm 16 years old. I'm 19. My name is Shalana Simon and I'm 16 years old. In the media, it's most often talked about with like things like Parkland and like mass shootings, which is obviously a different issue in a lot of ways. Soraya, I work with USOS, Youth Organizing to Save Our Streets. It's an after-school program for young people who want to be leaders in their community, who are passionate about anti-gun violence work. I feel like here, the youth aren't necessarily like worrying about mass shootings. Here, one of the different ways we talk about it is the fact that you can be somebody who causes harm and has had harm done to you. None of my close friends or close relatives was like, had their life ended due to gun violence, but it still affects me because like it's in my neighborhood and I've like witnessed it firsthand. I remember when I was younger, I was in fifth grade. This was sort of like winter time. So it started to get dark early. Me and a group of my friends were walking down the corner, going to the store. Shots just started letting go. And like, we didn't know if it was at us or not. Like we heard the those things that fall. We heard them fall and like, we saw the flash. Like I was in the middle of a shootout, you know, like that. And so, like I witnessed it and it still affects me, but just not in a traumatic way. Um, basically, I had a friend who had died from gun violence, Timmy. And it was just like a wrong place, wrong time. And I felt like that impacted me. That was traumatizing. Like, it was scary. Like I remember just running straight back down the block. And then a few what months later, one of my, someone from off the block I live in, he got shot, shot and killed um, during the night. And I like heard all the bad news in the morning when I woke up. Everyone in the corner was all sad and stuff. We're treating it like a public health issue and that when one person is affected by violence, those around them become affected by it and that you can prevent it by educating people, speaking out when it happens and learning about your own triggers. Uh, we're also going to have um, clipboards out there in the event that people uh, want to learn more about the uh, organization. When I first came in the group, it was like weird for me. So when I first came in, I was kind of nervous. Like at first I didn't really know what it was about. But then I got open to everyone and everyone was like open to me and cared about me. We get to talk about how we feel in our community, how safe, how unsafe, what changes we like to see. Once I like got into the program, like it was like, okay, I came a lot. Like I kind of like this, you know, so I just stuck with it felt like this was like a second home. All right. All in favor say aye. We talk a lot about self-care and like trauma and how that can manifest in people and young people. Ways that they can cope at school where maybe they don't have the same support networks. I mean, we have school safety agents, but we don't really feel safe. It makes me feel more unsafe, especially like how aggressive they can get. 
uh, I feel like I'll be safer if they weren't there. The staff here treat them differently than like staff at their school. We don't have the same pressures, of course. You then feel like you're just being controlled now, like you have limitations to what, basically you have limitations like to reaching your true potential. That's scary in itself. It's not one person is a shooter and one person is a victim. Some of the strongest leaders we've had like at our organization and various programs have been people that have been involved in violence like perpetrating and want to do something about it so all right so um for the teach back group we're going to be meeting in the back office today and um they learned to teach back one of our core lessons conflict escalation and de-escalation and they are now taking that lesson but putting it in more in their own words. All right, so basically this is the conflict ladder and this is how you go from zero to 100 real quick, feel me? Go from comp to rig real quick. I thought it was pretty cool the way like we did everything. First we learned about violence and oppression, we learned about the school to prison pipeline, we learned about de-escalation. So we did like internal conflict, external conflict. The de-escalation ladder. Tricks and like strategies. Let's say I get angry about something, I sometimes would want to use my fist instead of using my mouth, but I self-control. Oh, okay. Next we have Kayla. She's feeling to come up here to talk about the de-escalation conversation. Feeling. Kayla. They made a role play. So who wants to I'm, be the friend? You want to be the friend? Okay. And then everyone else is kind of instigating. Where they kind of escalated the conflict. Right, so light, camera, action. So my phone goes off, ding, 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 ding. And are gonna talk about like what things you see when a conflict escalates, what do you see in someone's body language and their tone of voice. She don't subs at me. Yeah, bro, I think they do that real quick. I'm sorry. Yes. No, I'm still real quick. Oh, okay. Same character. Oh, okay, okay, continue. Don't be pressing like my friend. A, first of all, I'm, I'm talking to your friend. Don't be pressing my friend. I'm talking to your friend, not you. Talking to you. In a role play, I would say I'm the person that would escalated basically i'm getting talked about and i confront the person that's talking about me but in just like a negative way like a violent way i feel like you was doing stuff so just keep it straightforward i'm keeping it a whole buck 50 what are you talking about that's it so boom like i feel like you was doing stuff i, I want to fight i don't care yeah okay great so wonderful yeah so i feel like after at our teach back we will be presenting to, like, youth, like, younger than us youth. A little update is that um, we did find a school for the Teach Back, PS 308. They specifically wanted to work with younger kids. Because I think to, like, stop or reduce violence, we should try to tackle the roots, you know, and, like, the roots would always start when you're young. So they're going to be with 5th to 8th graders in bed -Stuy. So we're going to do a small group activity where you guys are going to talk in groups about how you may have uh, resolved conflicts or not resolved conflicts, ways you want to work. If you can all count off by 
four. Four. Okay, so in that scenario, what do you guys see happen? They about to get it all. <laughs> <laughs> about to get it all. A fight broke out. They about to fight. Okay. Um. Have you guys experienced that type of conflict before? Yes. Yeah. 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 I did. So my friend said that he can beat me in WWE 2K19. So I'm like, no, you can't. And and I have a title in that game. Oh, you got a title? You big man status. Okay. I got three titles. My friend who was playing, he was playing Geometry Dash. So I saw him in the auditorium playing. So I decided to walk by. I walked by and I touched the phone and he lost and then he started yelling. I was like, come on, chill out, bro. It's just a game. You know I'm not going to do that to you, so don't do not do that to me. You're going to yell at me, just go go in the hallway and chill. So, it's five-year-old kid, right? He said he better than me in Fortnite. I kept saying, no, you're not. He kept saying, yeah. He kept begging me to want me to win him. So after I beat him, he takes away my edits, still clapping him. He gives me my edits back, still clapping him. This man is mad. He throws his headphones, his controller. His brother comes in, bro. He like, bro, you broke my controller. And then, well, he just started crying. He got on the mic. He was like, I got to get off. So do you think you could have handled that differently than what happened? Yes. What do you think you could have did? He could have gave me my energy back and stopped flying. Did you have to go and you had to deal with a five-year-old, though? I mean, like... Sometimes it's it's his fault. It's his fault. He joined my party. He joined your party. Sometimes you have to be the bigger person. Not everything needs a reaction, you know what I mean? We really want them to trust themselves and the wisdom they have about why they do this work. So your gut, like, when I always get into a conflict, my gut is always telling me, hey, don't do this, because then you're going to get consequences. My brain tells me to punch him. My heart tells me to to walk away. My gut tells me to kick him. <laughs> like, why can't you think clearly when you're enraged? Because I'm too focused on that specific thing that they want to do. I know, like, it's hard to calm down from the rage. Like, I know, but, you know, you can do a couple things. To you say help it's you. hard. It's so not what hard. do you like to do? It, it, it's, it's an extremely hard. It, extreme, it is extremely hard, but you know you can count, breathe in and out, stuff like that. Talk to someone. You can get back to calm from rage. You just have to try. These are young people that maybe have been in a lot of conflicts. Do you have a safe space? Usually I just sit on I just sit under my covers. But that's also what makes them so great at speaking on it. What about outside your house? Do you have somewhere else that makes you feel safe? Uh, I would go up. I would go upstairs towards my brother's room. It became like my sense of voice, just to speak on my experiences and just make sure like no one else can, you know, experience that. They're really amazing young people, and I'm just really excited that they wanted to take this on. That they were like, I want to go to a middle school. And I just feel like that's beautiful. Like, I'm starting to look into like, activism because I found something that I enjoy to do and it's really, like, beneficial to everyone, so like, why not roll with it? In response to the endemic murder of black men at the hands of police officers, 
John Henry's photographs spotlight the women who endured this senseless loss and carry on. His ongoing project, Stranger Fruit, examines the mother-son relationship through stunning images of mothers and their children suspended in embrace. Saul Nova, who curated an exhibition of John's work at Brick, sat down with the artist to talk about Stranger Fruit. Here's John Henry. As I hold my son in my arms, there is nothing strange about him. He is indeed the fruit of my womb, the extension of his father and me, growing, stretching, reaching to the skies. There is nothing strange about him. Uh, my name is John Henry. I'm an artist from Brooklyn, New York, usually working in visual art, typically photography. The project Stranger Fruit began in 2014 and began as a response to the murders of African-American men due to police violence. More than 200 people have been arrested in a day of protest over the acquittal of three police officers and the killing of Sean Bell. The morning of the verdict, those images from the newspaper uh, stayed with me forever. The 23-year-old Bell died in a hail of 50 police bullets the morning of what would have been his wedding day in November of 2006. Later that year in October, my good friend was getting married and I was one of the groomsmen and at the bachelor party that's all I could think of was what if this was happening to him? What if this was happening to us? 2014 was when it actually all came together. Stranger Fruit comes off of the Billie Holiday song Strange Fruit but it was really the Nina Simone song that I connected with more. Strange Fruit is um, as they describe southern bodies hanging from the poplar tree in the antebellum south basically speaking to lynchings. With Stranger Fruit, people aren't getting lynched anymore, but they're literally getting picked off the street. Lynching was such a common thing, and now it's like these shootings have become commonplace, you know, where we've almost become numb to it. Every image has its own uh, story. It's kind of a, just right on a street corner in New Jersey in front of a closed down cleaners. Ebony in the middle with her pink shirt that says awake on it, holding up her son, flanked by her two younger sons on each side, one holding his head, the other one supporting his legs, all of them staring into camera. One of the things I use in the photo is the gaze, the mother looking into the viewer. Uh, makes it a lot harder to look away. For a, a long time while I was working on the project, something wasn't right. There was still another piece that was missing to make it complete. While I was in Chicago, Nefertiti from Parkchester, New York, she had reposted the image that we made the previous year on Facebook, and she had written this amazing poem. As I hold my son in my arms, there is nothing strange about him. The second I saw the poem, it was like, you know, I got hit with a bullet. There is nothing strange about him. It just stopped me dead in my tracks, and that instant I knew this was the final chapter of the piece. It was the text, the text from the mothers. There is nothing strange about him. He is my son, he is my soul, and he is beautiful. There are a couple more locations that I have to photograph in before I can really say it's finished. Um, in particular, being Minneapolis this winter, I just have you know these images burned in my head of the black bodies in the snow. But also Minneapolis, St. Paul is the home of Target. 
So just thinking of the possibilities with the red bullseye, Texas, Nebraska, maybe, you know, like a handful of other locations, but uh, because, yeah, I could shoot Stranger Fruit forever, but trust me, I do not want to. <laughs> what does justice look like? Um, I really don't know. Um, I mean, just thinking of these these crimes, I mean, there there is no justice. Even if you lock the police officer up for life, that's not bringing somebody's son back. That's not bringing someone's kid back. Yeah, so I don't know. I don't, I don't know what justice is in, in these terms. I mean, it's supposed to be blind, supposed to be equal, but the track record for justice isn't that great. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Bogosian, Shanine Bargi, Kyrell Palmer, Sasha Whittle, Charlie Hoxie, Sriyanka Ray, Anna Luck, and Maria Luisa Tucker. If you like what you hear, think we got something wrong, or just want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us at Brick Radio, or rate and review the show on the apps. And now you can watch some of the hottest video content coming out of Brooklyn USA on the website. Visit youtube.com slash BrickTV to watch our short doc on The God Squad. We're tackling everything from wellness to cooperative economics this season, and we want to hear from you. If you want in, send tips, pitches, thoughts, ideas, self-destructing messages, or just regular emails to radiopitches at brickartsmedia.org. And check the show notes for a link to our pitch page if you want more info. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library and from the Blue Dot Sessions. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org radio. If you're using a definition of snitch, you can't put snitch in a definition of snitch. You right? I do. Yeah, I like you.